0: Thank you, men. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In your Bibles this morning, my nine-year-old approached me this morning and, and uh, she said, Daddy, I just love Harvest Fest. Now, remember, she's just a harvest kid. She gets to work one of the booths and help out and serve the teenagers that are coming as guests. And she said, Daddy, I just love Harvest Fest. And she said, don't you think, or how did she say it? She said, why do we only have it for one day? (laughs) Because that's all we can take. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) No, uh, we had a great day yesterday. God blessed us. I think he blessed the day wonderfully. Uh, It's a highlight for me when I see all of the young people gather underneath the tent, underneath the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God. And um, I get goosebumps actually, I have, I have them right now, but uh, when I think about that because of what can happen in the lives of a young person, in the life of a young person when they come under the word of God, uh, lives can absolutely be changed for all of eternity. People passed from death unto life yesterday out in the middle of a hay field under a tent and uh, I love it. It has everything to do with the word of God, it has everything to do with the spirit of God. And I want to say thank you to all of you who participated, whether you were able to be out there and whether you worked or in the setup or uh, maybe through prayer, you weren't able to be there, but you were praying for us. Maybe you did some fasting for those young people. Thank you for your, for your love for souls and your uh, commitment to the Great Commission. Um, it was a wonder, wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, it's not quite over yet. We have a couple of things out there on that field that still need to be brought in. It's been picked pretty clean, so most of it's all done, but really we have about an hour to two hours worth of work. Uh, There's an ox in the ditch. It's an annual thing every Sunday, once a year uh, after the day of Harvest Fest. So we need about 15 men today at 2.30 to meet out at the Jex Farm uh, where the event took place. And we'll bring in some straw and uh, take down the climbing wall and some of those other things, and we'll be done. And uh, so you hold back your enthusiasm, we don't want to disrupt the service at all, but uh, about 15 men would be a great help, 2.30 today, and uh, the force brings it to place. Remember, uh, a few weeks ago I, I gave an introduction to this book, and we talked about where it was penned down, and who God used to pen it down, and, and who it was, where the, the destination of the letter was going. And, of course, it's to a city, a city, the city of Ephesus. And there were a group of believers there, people who had received the Lord Jesus Christ the very same way you have received the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, God had some instruction for them. There were some things they were rough around the edges. They needed some help. And, uh, and there were some things they weren't doing right. There were some things they were doing well, but there were some things they needed to be rebuked about. And uh, but before they could do well in those areas, they had to know what they what they had in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to know what God had provided for them, and uh, and that's what the first few chapters of this book are all about. Um, really, he talks about in the first half of this book, he talks about our spiritual wealth in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about our position. In Christ, the position of believers. He talks about how God sees us. He talks about our privileges, what privileges we have in Christ. He talks about Christian blessings and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. And really what Paul is saying to these believers is, you are rich in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have so much in Christ. What's your perspective about your spiritual condition. Is your perspective one of poverty? I don't have what I need. Or is your perspective about yourself one of, I am so wealthy in Christ. I have everything that I need. I have everything that I need. You know, sometimes as we go through the Christian life, our perspective can change. Sometimes our perspective needs to be recalibrated because sometimes you and I can begin to look around at the world around us and we can begin to get a woe is me, a self-pity, a pitiful type of perspective of, you know what, I've, I've been overwhelmed, I'm, I'm being overcome, I don't have what I need. I don't have what I need. And, and Paul, as he writes to these believers right up front, he's telling them, I want you to know what you have. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you might remember the illustration that I began with last week, or included in the, or a few weeks ago in the sermon. I mentioned the witch of Wall Street. That sounds so horrible, uh, uh, witches. You know, I take my children. We'll go to Home Depot or something, and and a few weeks ago, they had already decorated for Halloween. And my children were like sneaking behind the drills, and then they would run from one end cap to the other, so that the the decorations wouldn 't see them and It was quite funny, and I just kept walking and, and God, it helps us i think have bring our minds to where they need to be for the message this morning. but uh, uh, she lived a long time ago, and uh, she was an incredibly brilliant woman, she really was there. Uh, on the East Coast, and uh, was worth over $2 billion in today's currency when she passed away. She was an investor, and, and she, she loaned money, and she had businesses in mines and mortgages and railroad, and she was a, really an excellent and incredible mind, an incredible businesswoman. But they called her the Witch of Wall Street. And I think some of it probably became legendary, if you know what I mean. Probably there were some exaggerations, but they talked, they they wrote about her. The papers would write about her and how stingy a person she was, and how she only had one dress, and and she wouldn't she wouldn't uh, change her her, her attire uh, until it literally wore, began to wear out and fall off of her, and then she would get a new dress because she was, you know, she was just that frugal, we could say it in a positive way, but stingy in the negative way, um, they, they talked about how she wouldn't pay to heat her water, she wouldn't have hot water in her home, and, and she wouldn't pay to heat her apartment, uh, because that would cost money, and that was just ridiculous, you didn't need to heat, have a heated home, you just, you know, you just, I guess, tough it out. Uh, she would eat oatmeal every day, and she would heat it on the register, not at home, but at work, in the office. Um, and 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 she was well known for this. I, I told you about her son Ned. She had only had two children: a daughter and a son. And her said her son, not, her son Ned injured his leg, and she she took him from doctor to doctor. The doctors who helped people who had nothing, and she would take she would take her son from doctor to doctor, and they would refuse to treat him because she could pay, and she wouldn't pay. And uh, some of the people surmised that. Eventually, because she was unwilling to pay a doctor to, to take care of her son, ultimately they had to amputate her son's leg. Um, and, and, he, and he lived the rest of his life like that. Interestingly enough, both, of her, both her son and her daughter really rebelled against her way of life. Uh, when, when her son grew up, he, he inherited a lot from his mom, and, and he spent a lot of things. He just indulged in the things of this life. And not necessarily in a bad way that I read, but just stuff. He just had a lot of stuff. Her daughter also rebelled, but differently. Um, She gave basically everything that she had inherited away to charity. And uh, neither one of them were like their mother. But it's interesting, and I I only bring that up to remind us that there was a woman who had... Everything, financially, that anybody could ever have wanted, as far as finances. She had a lot of money, but she lived like she had nothing. That's how she lived. And and likewise, I think the Ephesian believers, and sometimes you and I, we have so much spiritual wealth by the choosing of God, by the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the indwelling of the Spirit of God, and yet many times believers live like God has given them nothing. They live spiritually broken and bankrupt. And in Paul's, he writes to them, and he puts it in the positive, as we'll see this morning. This passage is so doctrinally rich, it really is. But it's so very practical, and it is absolutely necessary. If we miss the truths that the Apostle Paul was laying out to the church at Ephesus in these first three chapters, you will be unable, you will not have the capability to obey the instruction in the last three chapters. So let's look at them this morning. Uh, beginning at, let's look beginning in verse number three, Ephesians chapter one, and I'll begin reading in verse number three. And I'll read down through verse number 14. We're going to read it, and some of it's going to make perfect sense, and some of it are, there's some big words, and we're going to have to look at it, and the Spirit of God's going to teach us this morning. So let's look and read, beginning in Ephesians chapter one, verse number three, down through verse number 14, it says this: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ." In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of the glory. And the, and the idea is the praise of his glory, the praise of the glory of God. Three times in this passage, the statement is made unto the praise of his glory. There are three truths I want to notice this morning. Uh, three reasons that God is worthy for you and for me to praise his name. You know, we, sometimes we can praise a ball player because they did so well at something. We can praise a team, or we can praise a person for, for accomplishing something. We say, hey, great job, you did a great job. We praise them for it. But why is it that God is worthy of our praise? Well, there are three reasons that Paul brings out to these Ephesian believers. Three reasons, and I want to notice them this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll look at them. Dear Heavenly Father, help us this morning. Some of us are really tired physically. Our bodies are just tired. We could just go to sleep right now. And then, Fathers, others of us in this room are broken. Our hearts are aching because of loss. Others, Lord, still in this very room this morning are hurting spiritually. We're dry spiritually. And we need to have our love for the Lord rekindled. We need to have our faith and confidence in him brought back to where it needs to be. So, Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take your word... And God, would you do what I cannot, and would you meet the needs of the people in this room with humble hearts, wanting to hear from you? I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So God wants us to know what we have in him. Notice, first of all, in verse number 3 in, in, through 6, that we see the work of the Father, God the Father, And we see, first of all, that God is worthy of our praise because he hath chosen us. And Paul says this to these believers, and this is the incredibly wonderful doctrine of election. And you know the Bible does teach election, don't you? Sometimes in certain uh, circles, the word election gets a bad name or predestination has gotten a bad name. The sovereignty of God, the right of God to choose that someone can be saved. But I want you to know it's something the Bible teaches the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination is not one that you and I ought to reject. It's not one that you and I ought to be afraid of, but it is one that has confused or brought a lot of confusion into Christianity today. Save somebody doesn't mean that that person doesn't have a responsibility to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or, or receive Christ as their personal Savior. And free will doesn't cancel out God choosing somebody to be saved. They complement one another. They go hand in hand. God, in fact, elects a person to be saved. If God has not chosen you to be saved, it's impossible to be saved, okay? Okay? God has to choose a person to be saved, but he does it in conjunction or in partnership with the person who exercises his God-given capability to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, when that person, by God, has been awakened from their sin. This process, both the act of electing, God choosing a person to be saved, and that person's Receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior happens at exactly the same moment. God God the Father draws a person unto salvation. The Word of God produces faith in a person's heart. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Spirit of God allows a person to understand the truth about their sinful condition and that God is who he says he is and the Bible is true and that Jesus died on a cross and took the sins of the whole world upon his body. And at the same moment that that person is believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God elects to save that person. You see, the elect are the whosoever will that come. I believe that with all of my heart. Matthew chapter 28, or excuse me, chapter 11 in verse 28 through 30 says this. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so we find in this passage, and in the Word of God, we find the Lord Jesus Christ repeatedly telling people, come unto me, come unto me, and I'll save you. Come unto me, and I'll deliver you. Seek me, and and I'll be found. And at the same time, the Bible teaches that God chooses to save people. Now, what I have not said is that God chooses to send people to hell. I don't believe anywhere in the Bible... The Bible teaches that God chooses to send people to hell. The simple, wonderful truth of this passage that, that the Apostle Paul yearned to tell those believers at the uh, who were a part of the church at Ephesus, the simple truth that the Holy Spirit of God wants you and me to understand this morning, and this really is a simple truth, and yet it is a marvelous, overwhelming truth, is that Almighty God, who is holy, has chosen to save you. That's the truth. He has elected of his sovereignty and is of his right to do so. He has chosen to save me. That is an overwhelming truth. That is an incredible truth. And God is worthy of our praise because he hath chosen us. It's interesting, but really both of these acts, one by God, His choosing, and one by man, are, uh, accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, are believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, our free will, are executed together in the mind of God. It says in our, in our verse, in our passage, before the foundation of the world. Do you see there, that there in our passage? In verse number four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked this morning, and this is maybe mind-blowing, this, this concept, but think with me for just a moment. You and I are bound by time. We're limited by time. You might say, well, pastor, you don't seem to be limited by time. No, I am. I'm limited by time. Uh, We're all, we are limited by time. But you know this, God is not limited by time. When did God begin? He had no beginning. Now, you and I can't comprehend that. I had a beginning. I had a beginning. Uh, Not long ago, only 38 years ago, I had a beginning. Seth Ferguson began. But God has never had a beginning. And God will never have an end. And God is not bound by time. Here, let me, let me uh, go a little further with this. God, today, today, is already in the future. And he is today still in the past. You and I can't, can't, can't comprehend that. So here's what he's saying here. Before the foundation of the world, before the heavens and the earth were ever spoken into existence... Before God formed the heavens and the earth, God chose you. Now, because God is not bound or limited by time, he could, choose, you, he could cho- choose to save you. And he could choose to save me at the very same time you and I believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you following me at all? I'm not not asking if you can fully comprehend what I'm saying, but you simply need to understand that truth, that God not being bound by time, before before he ever created the heavens and the earth, knowing, according to his foreknowledge, knowing that you and I would need to be saved, and knowing who would believe, God chose to save you, and he chose to save me. Knowing who we are, not at that time, but who we are today, who we would be in our sins and trespasses. God chose to save you and me. And maybe that, maybe that helps explain a passage like 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, where it says this, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, God knowing who would be saved. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, and for, and for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. God chose you and me, and he is worthy of our praise because of it. God chose us before time began. Notice again in verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. God is the initiator of our salvation, friends. He is the initiator of our salvation. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 yeah, Paul talked to Timothy and he said, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. It was God's idea to save you and me. And that's what Paul is telling this church. God chose you. You didn't choose him as much as he chose you. But they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Uh, God has chosen us. He chose to save us. A lost sinner doesn't seek God. Romans 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. It is God. It is God in love that seeks the sinner. Luke 19 verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. George Chadwick once wrote these words, and they're worth our reading. He wrote, quote, I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, it was I found by you. Do you understand that? And be careful, friend, because I understand there's a debate between the Calvinists, so-called, and the Arminianists, so-called, uh, men who are both dead and gone, by the way, a long time ago, who created doctrines, uh, Justin Arminian creating a doctrine that taught that a person could lose their salvation, but that they, that they had the ability to come to God and be saved of themselves. And, and John Calvin creating a doctrine, and this is a, uh, a very simple summary of this, believing and teaching that God chose to save some people and chose to send other people to hell with no decision or opportunity for salvation for those people. And I want you to know, you might ask Seth Ferguson, what do you believe? I believe what the Bible teaches. I believe that mankind has a free will and has a choice to either reject God and reject the Lord Jesus Christ, and reject salvation. And I also believe that God, as he teaches in his word, elects people to be saved, and chooses to save people. And that no person can lose the salvation of God once they are saved. And we need to be careful, because in a church like Trinity, most of us here might be a little jumpy at the term Calvinism. We get a little jumpy when we talk about election. We get a little jumpy when we talk the term predestination is used. And folks, we ought not get jumpy about those terms. Those are not, aside from Calvinism, election, predestination, and choosing are biblical terms. And they shouldn't frighten us. We ought to ponder the word of God as to what it means. And very simply, what it means is that God has chosen to save you. He has chosen to save you. And he is worthy of our praise because... He has chosen to save us. In verse 4, he literally says, he chose us. He picked us. Before the world was created, God chose us. And by the way, it's because of his choosing that this church exists. If he hadn't chosen you to be saved, you wouldn't be able to be saved. If he hadn't chosen me to be saved, I wouldn't be able to be saved. Apparently my voice is grating on somebody. (laughs) All right, I'll drink. This is a glorious truth. God is worthy of our praise because He has chosen us. He chose us before time. Notice in verse number four, the latter part, He has chosen us to be sanctified. He's chosen us to be holy. Look at verse four, the middle part. Uh, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, you think about this. These Ephesian believers might not have comprehended this. They might have been going through their daily lives without thinking about this part of their inheritance. They might, without thinking that God has made a provision for me of his own choosing. He has chosen me to be holy. He's chosen me to live a life that is blameless, And he also tells us at the end of verse number four what motivated God to choose us. Why would God choose us? And there's a very simple four-letter word at the end of verse number four. And And the word is love. His purpose for choosing us is so that we would be holy. He didn't choose us because we were good enough. God did not choose us because we were good enough. Isaiah 64 and verse number 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Jeremiah the prophet talked about our hearts, and he says, Our hearts are desperately wicked. He says, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans 5.8 tells us, though, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have been called by God unto holiness. We have been chosen by God to be holy, to be a peculiar people, to be blameless And God desires for us to be separated from worldliness, from uh, anti-Christ-like things. God is holy. And by the way, this truth, the holiness of God, is the standard. And this truth alone should motivate us to be intolerant of sin. And I should qualify it by especially pointing out being intolerant of sin in our own lives. You know, sometimes, sometimes God's people... We can talk about the sin of the world around us. And and, and, and sin ought to grieve our hearts no matter where it's found. But sometimes you and I can be good at seeing sin in the lives of other people. And, and, And sin in the lives of people who are unsaved. And sin in the lives of other people who are saved and thinking, well, I don't know why they do that. Or I don't know why they watch that. I can't believe that they would listen to that. I don't know why they don't have the same standards in their lives than I do. Listen to me very closely. The holiness of God and him choosing us to be holy and to be blameless ought to build up an intolerance in our hearts for sin, especially in our own lives. Especially in our own lives. We ought to be more concerned with the sin in our lives our own lives, than we are in the sin in someone else's life. Be quick to be intolerant against sin in our own lives. Societies change, people change, culture changes, but God never changes. God is holy, and he's chosen us to be holy. That was his purpose. Do you know that? When God chose you and me before the earth was ever formed, and he knew who was going to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew who was going to be saved, uh, and he chose to save you and he, to save me. The moment in, in downtown Detroit, Michigan, as a five-year-old boy, when I believed upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that moment God chose to save me, and he already knew about that before the earth was ever created. But when he chose to save Seth Ferguson, he also chose, he was choosing Seth you are called to be holy and to be blameless. You say, Seth, are you holy? <sighs> well, in Christ, I am. In the flesh, I'm not. Someday, and by the way, someday, that's why we're going to be given new bodies when we get to heaven, because uh, when, he, when we're given those new bodies in heaven by the Lord, uh, and that's why these old bodies can't enter into heaven's gates, because they are defiled and they're wretched. And there's a battle that takes place in this body every day, a spiritual war. Like I was reminded this morning, and Paul talked about it. He said, the things that I would do, I don't do. And the things that I ought to be doing, or the things that I do, I ought not be doing. And he said this, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the bondage of this death, this flesh? Hey, listen, if the Apostle Paul struggled like that, I guarantee you, you and I struggle like that. And there's a war that goes on in our bodies every day between the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us and between this old wicked flesh that wants to go back and feast on the things of this this world. God has chosen us to be sanctified, to be set apart from this world. He's chosen us. He's chosen us to be holy. Are Are you committed to that? Do you know that? Did you know that? That God chose you and not just chose to save you from death and hell to come, but that he's chosen you to be holy. Did you know that? And by the way, it's going to happen. You're predestined to it. It's gonna, you say, I, I sure, I'm sure not uh, measuring up in this life. You know what? Someday you will be holy and without blame completely. And you'll never sin again. And all of that All of that was by God the Father's own choosing. Notice the end of verse number four. He he tells us the motivation for God's choosing us. He says, in love. And of course, John 3.16 might come to mind. For God so loved the world. He so loved the world. He loved so much. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has chosen us. 1 John 4 and verse 9 says, In this was manifested, it was made obvious, the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And then John said, Herein is love. This is what love looks like. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be... The propitiation, big word, means a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And then John follows it up by saying, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Hey, if God loved us so much that he was willing to send his only begotten son to this sin-cursed earth, To be nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers and betrayed by Judas Iscariot and rejected by the very people he came to save. If God loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to be beaten and flogged and whipped and have a crown of thorns driven into his skull and suffer and bleed and die on an old rugged cross, then should not you and I love one another? Should not you and I sacrificially give for one another, give of ourselves, give of our time, give of our thoughts, give of of our time in praying for one another and being burdened for one another? God is moving within Trinity Baptist Church, and there is not a day that goes by that I do not wake up where my heart and my mind is concerned for your souls and where many of you individually, your names come to my mind and I think about you and I think about your situation and I pray for you and I intercede for you and I ask for you. Oh God, please help them today. Defend them today. Care for them today. Provide for them today. You know, it's not just though it is a pastoral responsibility called of God to do it. Should you and I, as a group of believers, not love one another if God has so loved us? God is worthy of our praise because he has chosen us. He chose us before time began. He chose us to be sanctified and holy. And then thirdly, God has made us accepted. Notice in verse number four We are saved by being born again, by being born into the family of God. John talks about that in John chapter 3, when Jesus talked to that Pharisee, Nicodemus. And Jesus said to Nicodemus on the rooftop, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a grown man enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus is saying, no, no, you're, you're missing the picture. You need to be born again. You need to be born of the spirit. You need to be made spiritually alive. You need the Holy Spirit of God to come and take residence in your life. You see, when I was born into this world, I was born spiritually dead. I was physically alive, but spiritually, I was dead. My spirit was dead. And when I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, my spirit became alive because the Holy Spirit took up residence in my life. You see, an unsaved person cannot communicate with God the Father, partly because there's, a, there's an impenetrable wall of sin between a holy God and a sinful person. But, but the, the other reason is, is because we communicate with God through our spirit, through the Holy Spirit. That's how we talk to God. I'm not just talking about making sounds with our mouths. I'm not talking about just going through the motions of prayer. We speak to God through our spirit. That's how we communicate with God. And and when a person is unsaved, their spirit is dead, and there can be no communication with God. So a person has to be born again. In in verse number 6, he talks about adoption. Or verse number, uh, let's see here, verse number 5. He says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Now, adoption has kind of a dual meaning to it in this passage. It's both present and future. When we are saved, we are adopted. This gives us an adult standing in God's family. None of my children have the benefits of the will that my wife and I have prepared for them. They're all too young. We, we haven't given them that, those benefits. You know, the car's going to Tory, The truck's going to Will. You know, they don't have that benefit, although Will really thinks he can drive, and he made that very clear to me the other day. I can drive, Dad. I can drive the truck. That's a little scary. I need to find a new place for the keys. <laughs> but he may, he may think he can drive, but he, he cannot drive the truck. Um... So someday, they're going to benefit from an inheritance in some way. But not today. They're not of adult standing yet. But when you and I were adopted by the Lord Jesus Christ, after we were born again, or at the moment when we were born again of the Spirit of God, and made alive unto God, we were at the same time adopted into the family of God. And really what that means is that we were given adult standing with God. Now what does that mean? We're given immediate access to all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. That's what it means. Our Heavenly Father delights in the salvation of sinners. And he delights in lavishing spiritual blessings upon his children. He says at the end of verse number 5, According to the good pleasure of his will. Do you remember the announcement of the Lord Jesus Christ of of Jesus birth in Bethlehem? Do you remember that the the angel of God announces it to the shepherds that are standing there on that hillside? And then the heavenly hosts join in with the messenger of God. And it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Goodwill toward men, peace, goodwill toward men. Friends, this is what he's talking about in this passage where he makes the statement according to the good pleasure of his will. God, it has pleased God to choose us, it pleases God to choose to save a person whosoever will may come. And when a person drawn of the Father, uh, faith uh, uh, produced by the Word of God, the Spirit of God allowing them to come to understanding that this is the truth. I am a sinner, and God is who He says He is, and He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross to save me from my sin. When a person comes to that understanding, and they, in humility, At the very moment they believe upon the name of Lord Jesus Christ, God chooses to save that person. He elects to do so. And because he is sovereign, because there is no one higher than him, he is the supreme authority. That is, he has the right to do what he chooses to do. God is just in choosing to save people. Sinful men who believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he elects to do so. And at that very moment, he adopts us. That is, He provides for you. He gives us access by His Spirit and by His Word, by the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He gives us access into all of the spiritual blessings that we need, so desperately need, to be victorious in this life. I'm not going to go any further. I have two more points. But I'm going to stop there this morning. And I want us, as we go from this place this morning, just to rejoice in the simple truth that God has chosen to save me. He has chosen to save me. And next week, we'll look, Lord willing, we'll look at what Jesus Christ accomplished. And we'll look at what the Holy Spirit did in our salvation, sealing us unto the day of redemption. Sealed. It's a done deal. Never to be lost. Never to be lost. Uh, Let's all stand to our feet and take our hymnals, hymn number 38 this morning, hymn number 38. And let's sing a hymn of rejoicing, blessed be the name. And let's sing it out as unto the Lord. Or you could sing extra uh, uh, rejoicefully this morning, because I've ended early. That might be your motivation. For whatever your motivation is, let's lift up our voices and let's sing that hymn. Uh, Let's sing all three stanzas. And let's sing that hymn, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is worthy of our praise. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior friend, come talk to me this morning. I'd be glad to answer some questions. Believe upon the name of the Lord and thou shalt be saved. You say, I'm not saved. Will he choose me? He will choose you. If you will believe upon him, he will choose you. Let's sing together.